0: this cusp, or they're on this spot of, of preparing to inhabit the land that God has promised to them. Now, these stories are our narrative in nature. They're some of the oldest stories that we have in our world. And I'm a sucker for these stories. I love these stories. I love the imagination that's in them. I love some of the things that are omitted. They're simply not there, and we kind of have to speculate about them. I love the details that the storyteller gives us. And one of the things that's the best about these stories are the characters. I mean, the characters in these stories in Genesis and Exodus and throughout the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, they sound like people we know. I mean, we've got individuals that swindle and sucker and cheat anybody that will let them. We've got people that pray for years and years and years, and it seems like their prayers are never going to get answered. We have people that are impatient and Angry. And yet, all of these people, and through all these circumstances, for whatever reason, God still chooses to use some of these people. People that many of us are like. People that we know and we live next to in our communities. These are the characters that make me smile because these are the characters that I can relate to. These are the ones that walk around today. But there's other characters. are more difficult for me to relate to, and these are the most enviable characters. These are the characters with great faith. These are the strong, determined ones that sometimes I think I can never measure up to. These are the people who risk their lives because they're convinced they're not doing it on their own, but actually the Lord God is leading them. These are the people with great faith. Now, that word faith, and it's in our in our subtitle here, Life on the Edge of Faith, those five letters, faith, is such a big word. Whenever I hear that, I just think, oh, man, faith. I have this image of jumping into a a giant pool of water and having no idea where the bottom is and what might be swimming there next to you. Faith looks great when it's well-founded, but it looks incredibly foolish when it's not. Faith is risky, it's exciting, and it's unavoidable. I mean, all of us place faith in something. All of us are people of faith. It's simply how life is. But in these stories, it feels like it's all of what life is for some of these characters. Last summer, we, we finished in the book of Exodus. And at the very beginning of that story, we read about two Hebrew midwives. They have names. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is nameless. And yet these two midwives are given names. And they choose to spare the lives of the Hebrew boys, even though Pharaoh, the the king of the land, the most powerful person probably on earth at that time, told them to end their lives because of his fear. And then we read about a man named Moses. And Moses, he chooses to live as an Israelite, to be one of the Hebrew people, to be a slave, to leave this group out of Egypt instead of taking the corner office in the newest pyramid. He was raised as an Egyptian. And this is just the beginning of the story for Moses and for his sister, Miriam, and for their brother, Aaron. Story after story of great faith and great obedience. And yet there's also stories of reoccurring doubt and disobedience. And it makes me wonder what it takes to develop great faith that transforms a community. Great faith that lasts. Do you ever wonder if you've got what it takes to have faith like these people? Do you ever wonder how some of these characters got to the point of developing faith like this? Well, the people with great faith carry the crowd, but they're severely outnumbered. When we pick up the story in the book of Numbers, the morale of the group might be at an all-time low. To put it succinctly, they're a bunch of whiners. Now, the people of God, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, they started their whining back at Mount Sinai. And I don't blame them because when I get hungry, I get irritable, and I worry about where the next meal is coming from. And so even though God had led them out in this miraculous display of power, he parted the the Red Sea, and they walked on dry land. They got to the mountain, and all of a sudden they realized, wait a second, we were slaves, but at least we had food in Egypt. And they start to complain, what are we going to eat? And so God provides. There's a story in Exodus chapter 16 about bread from heaven. It's called manna. It means, what is it? And so every morning, it's like dew on the ground, and they would collect this flaky bread-like substance, and they would eat it. And they complained some more. We need some meat. And so God provided quail to kind of fly low in the evenings, and they had meat at that point. But we find out that even though they've now transitioned from Mount Sinai over to this new area, this, this desert, we find out that, that the people are back to their whining ways. And so now they say, well, we're kind of tired of eating this food. And it doesn't seem to be just one person. I mean, there's a whiner in every group of people, right? I think sometimes I'm accused of being the whiner, depending on what group it is. But it's not just a couple of people. The storyteller in the book of Numbers tells us that Moses hear people whining from every family. They're wailing. But what's even more surprising is that it's not just the whiners, it's some of the leaders too. Moses' own flesh and blood, his brother and his sister, Aaron and Miriam, they begin to complain about Moses and their opposition has to be settled by God himself. And so in the midst of all this grumbling and all this complaining about this monotonous diet that they have, about where they're going, about their leadership, there comes a major turning point in this story. And this is the story that we're going to look at today. It's found in the book of Numbers. We're going to be looking at chapter 13 and 14. The book of Numbers is about numbers. A good amount of the beginning of the book is all about counting Counting all these different people from different tribes and the understanding is there's this anticipation They're actually counting the able-bodied men who are 20 years old and older Because they're wanting to know what their numbers are for an army and we get this sense of anticipation They're getting closer now. They're on the outskirts of canaan They're ready to go in and take possession of this land and so it's this transition point They're at the edge of faith God promised to give Abraham's descendants, who we now know as the Israelites. And so in this story, God tells Moses to send out some men, some explorers. One man from each ancestral tribe, 12 men all together. Now, we don't know anything about these men outside of the heritage that they have and what tribe that they're in, with one exception. There's one man by the name of Hoshea, who's also known as Joshua. Joshua, apparently, is what Moses named Hoshea. And there's a couple of stories about him prior to the story that we're looking at this morning. And Joshua was sort of, he was kind of job shadowing Moses. He, maybe he was the office intern, or, or maybe he was a kind of the man-in-waiting. He was his apprentice. And so we've heard a couple of stories about Joshua, how he's been obedient to Moses, how he's carried out some of his instructions. But outside of that, we don't know who any of these other people are. Joshua's one of the twelve. And so he and 11 other men are sent to Canaan. And as we get to Numbers chapter 13, verse 17, we read that when Moses sends out the men to explore Canaan, he says to them, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. That's verse 17. Now, there's always details to these stories. And some of us might think, well, who cares what route that they got there? And, and maybe, since we're not the first people to read this, maybe the original hearers of this story thought, oh, that's interesting. We live in the hill country. Maybe that was some of the community people there. Maybe some of them had ancestors that came up from the Negev. Maybe this was something that was pertinent to their situation. But it seems to be the most important reason why this detail is in here is because this is the same route that Abraham took years before. In Genesis chapter 13, and actually in 12 before that, we learn of this man who at the time was named Abram. This is going back in the history a little bit, where Abram was told to leave everything he knew, his land, his inheritance, his people, and he was to go to this land that God had promised to him. And we read in in, uh, chapter 12 and 13, the Lord says to Abram, go, walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. And so at one point, he stops and he travels through the Negev. So these 12 explorers, they take the same route. Now, we could call them explorers. We could call them scouts, maybe spies, to use common terminology. Maybe we'd call them investigative reporters. They're going with a purpose of reporting back. And Moses, he gives them a few questions. He says, basically, here's your assignment. This is what I want you to scout out. This is what I want you to be looking for. So Moses says, I want you to know about the land. I I want information about the land. Is Is the land fertile? Is the soil good and rich? What sort of vegetation can we expect? He wants to know about the cities and the towns. Are they huge? Are they well fortified? Or are they suspect for an invasion? He wants to know about the specific vegetation, the trees and the plant life. He even asked for some fruit samples. And so they go, the 12 men go, and they travel through the area and they do what any of us would do. Their eyes are open, they're smelling things, they're looking, they're probably charting distances. We don't know how they're capturing this information, but they they spend 40 days there in this land. And while they're there, they do grab some fruit. And the storyteller is very specific in saying that they actually, they cut off a branch, a single cluster of grapes. And in order to bring it back, they put it on a pole between two men. And it's one of those lasting images of this story. Uh, the Bible that I had as a kid growing up was an illustrated one, because uh, I wasn't very good at reading when I was younger, I suppose, like all of us. And, and I remember that image, two men with this, this pole in between them, with this massive cluster of grapes. And it's this, this image of expectation of hope. Here they are out in the desert eating bread day after day after day. And yet there's this land that's been promised to them with this hope and expectation that they'll be able to eat fruit like this. Our first piece of art for our summer series was done by Ruth Ellen. It's up here and it's up on the screens as well. And there are the two men pull over their shoulder with that giant Cluster of grapes. And what I love about this image is it captures the series as well, crossing over. We see on the left the, the lush land, a land that's described as a milk as a land flowing with milk and honey. And they cross back over into the desert, where they're tent dwellers, because they're there temporarily. And so the men return. They return to the desert, they show the people the fruit. And they give them the report and you can read what they say in the 13th chapter of numbers beginning in verse 27. I'll read it for you to appear up there on the side screens. They start by saying, we went into the land, which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Now this phrase is one of those odd ones. We hear about it over and over and over A a land that's flowing with milk and honey. I always imagined a waterfall of milk and just tons of beehives. And I always thought that's a weird combo. I mean, milk goes best with chocolate cake and and honey goes best with bread you know i don't understand how this could be such such an attractive scenario for them but it was and and what it meant to them was abundance this was something that was rich it was desirable i don't know what you're picturesque land would look like. Maybe it would be an oceanfront view with no children. You know, maybe that's your your promised land. Uh, Maybe it's a shopping mall with unlimited credit. I don't know. But for them, it was this land flowing with milk and honey. And so the scouts start off by saying, this is true. We've heard all these years about this land flowing with milk and honey, and it does flow with milk and honey. And they say, here is its fruit. And then going into verse 28, But the people there who live there are powerful. The cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Now, this is the first report that is given. We don't know who's speaking here. We don't know if collectively all 12 of them are giving insights. Uh, But we know that this is kind of the data. And they've answered most of Moses' questions here. They've talked about the land and the people and the cities. And, And so they seem to have done a fairly good job. And we don't know how the people responded. They were not just reporting to Moses, but it says the entire Israel community was there listening, but we know that some noise came out of this, because we find out later they have to be silenced. So maybe some of them are asking questions, maybe some of them have started complaining again, and so there's a whole level of of noise that's going on. Uh, Personally, I think some of them might have been fighting over some of the fruit. (laughs) That's a pretty nice cluster of grapes, you know, how are we going to settle out who actually eats this stuff? Someone's got to be a taste tester. But they're talking. And it, it, it's created a bit of a frenzy. And then we find out that they're silenced by one person. And his name is Caleb. One person. Now, Caleb, up to this point, we know nothing about him. Nothing in the scriptures say anything about Caleb. The only thing we know is based on, on the, the numbers of the men who went and what families they came from. And we know that Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And he's the son of a man named Japhuna. So Caleb, one of the 12 scouts, he says this, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. We should go. Let's go up and let's take the land because we can do it. Now the report is over, right? This is his opinion. Caleb is no longer talking about the land. He's no longer giving, you know, kind of practical Uh, Data that, that is measurable by any means, he is casting a vision. He's saying, folks, people, let's go. We can do this. But his vision doesn't last very long because there's immediate opposition. And it comes from the very same men that he explored the land with. This is what they say in the next verse. We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And so they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. Remember earlier they said it's a land flowing with milk and honey and it's lush with vegetation. Now they say it devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. And the storyteller adds this comment that they're descendants of Anak, and the Nephilim were kind of this mysterious people. They were known as giants. And so they're starting to say, wait a second, these people, they, they don't just have strong cities and all this, but, but they actually, they're, they're large people. They're of great size. And they finish off their rebuttal by saying, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same. So one team explores the land, but from this group come very different opinions. Why? How can 12 men go on a journey together and spend 40 days together, and how can they have such different opinions? How can they see the same thing, and how can they in turn process it so differently? Do I need to switch a mic here? No? I'm good. Okay. Ah, that sounds a lot better. Thank you. Not quite as powerful, but good. How does that happen? Now, I was was thinking yesterday uh, about being in group projects. I hated group projects as a student. It always felt like everyone else had something else to do, and then you were stuck trying to figure it out by yourself. Maybe that's what this was. Maybe this was a dysfunctional group project where they all went in there, they all had different ideas, and they all processed the assignment differently. But how how does Caleb do this? Why is he the one here that says something different than the others? How is he the one that's able to demonstrate some of this faith? Was Caleb one of those foolishly optimistic people? Were the others, were they the ones who were realists? Were they the reasonable people? Were the other men just flat out more serious, more well-grounded? Maybe Caleb was, was one of those ones that, didn't really look at all the facts, and he was just one of those hopeful people. And so he says to Joshua, hey, let's prepare the troops. Let's take the land. Because later on, Joshua, we find out, is he's of the same opinion of Caleb. And the other 12, no, we can't do this. Forget about the grapes. They're giants, and we're like grasshoppers. Well, it gets worse. The story gets much worse in the next chapter. We find out in chapter 14 that the men not only give a bad report, but the report that they give has a very divisive impact on the community. And so the Israelites become so delirious, they begin to dream up ridiculous scenarios. I mean, you think about just logic and how this works. One of the things, first things that say in chapter 14 is they said, if only we had died in Egypt. So they're fearful for their lives now, and now they actually wish that they already would have died back in Egypt. And then they question God for bringing him to the land. They say, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? My favorite excuse, as they're trying to figure out what to do here, is they tried to hide their fear and their cowardice by trying to to assume the fact that they're family men. The men say, our women and children are going to be taken as plunder. And then they cast a new vision that's far less inspiring. They say, wouldn't it just be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so forgetting that these are the same people who not all that long ago had groaned and cried out about their injustice and their slavery to God. These same people say, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And when they hear this, Aaron and Moses, they fall down on their faces. Caleb and Joshua tear their clothes which is a kind of a cultural symbol of grief. It can even be a a sign of righteous anger. They're repenting. They're incredibly overwhelmed by the response of the community. And so they plead their case once more together, uh, Joshua and Caleb together. They say, don't be afraid of this people in this land because we will swallow them up. This is verse nine. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. So they give it another shot. What do the people do this time? They discuss which one should go and collect stones and which one should warm up their throwing arms. Now, there's conflict in the story. We realize this, right? Two opposing groups, two very different perspectives. And we can feel this tension between the fearful and the faithful. And the fact that faith is a major topic in the story, which is found in the Bible, should not surprise any of us, right? This is what these stories are about who will be faithful? Who will believe? The essence of these stories is faith, belief in a God, that there's actually a God who created things, who cares about people, who wants to be central to their stories, belief that God has a son who is known as Jesus, belief that Jesus actually came to this earth, belief that Jesus died for people's sins, belief that Jesus didn't just stay dead, but that he rose again and has victory over sin and over death. Belief that these aren't just beliefs and hopes, but these are actually based on events, events. These are historical things that happened. Belief that this is actually truth and that this truth has the power to actually change people's lives. Faith is not just believing. Faith is acting. It's one thing to say that a chair was well built and sturdy, like some of these chairs here that we see in the banquet hall. It's quite another thing to sit on that chair and to invite five other people to sit on your lap. One is believing. The other is acting. And Caleb, in this story, we learn that he's a faith-by-practice sort of guy. He's got bold faith. It's courageous faith. It's stick-your-neck-out faith. It's bet-the-farm-for-what-you-believe-in faith. It's the type of faith that inspires people. Now, it's quite, quite common for us in a church setting, it's quite common for Christians to talk about this sort of faith. But one thing that we don't often talk about is how to develop this sort of faith. How does a person muster up this sort of faith? How does a person not only just show this faith, but demonstrate this faith? And what is it about Caleb? Why does he believe and act when others don't? What was he doing before this story that prepared him for this moment of acting with such great faith? How is he able to trust while the others are afraid? Now, if I could ask any questions about this story. Those would be the questions that I would ask Caleb. These would be the ones that I would ask him, Caleb, what made you different? What were you doing differently than these other explorers? Why did you respond in this way when the others didn't? I'd ask these questions because it's not enough for me to tell myself to have greater faith. I need to know how to develop stronger faith. I don't want to leave here and just say, That's a a good word from this story. We should all just have greater faith. That's not going to do anything. We need to find out how do we develop this sort of faith? What do we do in our lives to actually strengthen that part of our lives? As I mentioned before, we don't know anything about Caleb before this story. And after the story, whenever Caleb is talked about again, it's with respect to this story once again. The Lord God actually says, Caleb has a different spirit about him. So what was he doing before this story to develop the courageous faith that ends up transforming this story? Well, the stories don't spell it out for us. We can't know for sure. But you and I know enough about how faith works to connect the dots together. In order for you to believe something, really in order for any of us to believe anything, we need one of two things to happen. We need either a believable scenario or a believable source. A believable scenario is is pretty simple. It's a realistic proposal. It's this understanding that if a theory is doable, it's believable. If I met someone today and he told me, Keith, I just met you, but in one month, 30 days from now, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, I would think, yeah, that's reasonable. But if then he told me his body mass index and he had the potential to lose 100 pounds and he told me what his eating plan was and his exercise plan was and who was going to team with him while he did that, I would think, well, this is definitely believable because the theory is realistic. It's reasonable. If you told me that you have a a lunch appointment later today and you're going to drive to Abbotsford and it's going to take you 30 minutes to get there, I would believe you. It's reasonable. It's realistic. It's worth putting your trust in. The second believability factor is a source, which is really just a trustworthy subject. If a source is trustworthy, the idea becomes trustworthy. Most of us are familiar with the phrase that says, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's the understanding that if you get duped continuously by one person, that's on you. They're no longer a believable source. And so while they certainly have some blame for themselves each individual understands that there's this factor in, in looking at someone's reasonable credibility. When I was in high school, I worked on several school projects with a friend of mine. He is incredibly artistic, creative, and imaginative. Of course, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, now I, I see that in him. And going back to this idea of group projects, we were on several group projects together, and his scenarios were completely unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, there's no way we can do this in this time frame. This has nothing to do with the assignment. I don't even understand what you're talking about. And so quite often, we, we wouldn't really work together. We'd kind of do our own thing. And I just thought, there's no way this is going to happen. We can't pull this off. We're going to fail this assignment. But then he started completing these things. And the weird sort of things he told me that did not make sense, somehow it all came together. And I began to realize his scenario is complete lunacy, but he developed a trustworthy factor about him. And so, because he was a believable source, I began to believe in his scenario. Now, if you're going to believe in something, you need at least one of these two a believable scenario or a believable source. In the court of law, the most pers- persuasive cases, the best cases, are the ones that have a healthy dose of both. There's believable sources. And there's believable scenarios. But when there isn't either one, when there's no believable scenario, and when there's no believable source, a person is said to have blind faith. Now, lots of people think that this is what the Christian faith is really all about. It's blind faith. It's people taking a really big jump. They look at some of these scenarios and they think, that doesn't sound reasonable. That doesn't sound factual. And they haven't come to a point of trusting the source. And so when you examine the proof and add it all together, you're, all you can be left with is a blind faith. And it looks like a jump that's way too big to take. But believable scenarios and believable sources are different, but they do have one thing in common, and that's a track record. A scenario is believable. It becomes believable when you compare it to the past. If we find out that, that in most situations it takes an hour to get to Abbotsford, that'd be far more likely for us to believe in that scenario that someone could get there in 30 minutes. If we found out that only half a percentage of all people are able to to lose weight, then we would say, there's no way. That's not believable at all. It doesn't stack up. The very reason that a source becomes believable is because they've proven their trustworthiness. We find out that history has an incredible link the believability factor. Without a history of believability, neither one means anything, which means that our faith has a crucial impact on the present, the history. And that's what separates Caleb from the others. Caleb remembers that the source, the Lord God Almighty, has proven himself to be believable, which makes the scenario that he's looking at not only believable, but probable. This is not blind faith. This is reasonable calculating. And the reason is, is because faith is not just believing. Faith is remembering. Faith is not just believing, hoping, wishing. A good part of faith is actually remembering. What has happened before? And so Caleb and Joshua and the other 10 They spend 40 days together. They see the same sights. They eat the same food. They explore the same land. But when Caleb says we should go and take the land, the others hear a scenario that's not believable. And it begins to change what they saw. The land that had been flowing with milk and honey, that had been abundant and rich, now that same land, they say, is devouring everything that once lived on it. Caleb was convinced that the scenario was believable because he learned that the source was believable. And when he and Joshua speak to the people for a second time, they say, if the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. Don't be afraid of the people of that land, because we will devour them. And Listen to this part. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Where does Caleb come up with us? I think it was based on his experience with a believable source. When he was a slave in Egypt, he was freed by the Lord God with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. When he saw the Red Sea in front of him and Pharaoh's army behind him, he saw the Lord part the waters. His feet walked on dry land. When there was no food in the desert and his stomach was growling, Caleb ate the food that God provided And as God provided for him each and every step of the way, and as God led them to the border of Canaan, Caleb must have remembered the promise that God once spoke to Abraham that was repeated to Moses, that was repeated to all of Israel. I will give you this land. Did Caleb have great faith? Absolutely. But faith is not just believing. Faith is remembering. And I can't help that many of us have trouble believing because many of us have trouble remembering. I know it's true in my life. It's very easy sometimes to look specifically at the scenario without dwelling on the past and without thinking what God has already done to us, the promises that he has given to us. There was a time in my life many years ago when I was really discouraged I wasn't quite sure what the future was going to hold. I wasn't sure what sort of career path I was on and and so I felt lost. I wasn't quite sure what to do. My current scenario was hardly believable. My girlfriend at the time was much smarter than me. It's not too surprising. She still is. That's why I married her. And and she told me I needed to listen to something. She said I need to watch a tape. She told me I needed to listen to a sermon. And the ironic thing is it was me that was speaking. The first one I, I had ever given. It wasn't really a sermon as much as, as a talk, but it kind of did the trick. And I don't even remember how she got this message. I don't remember why she had it or, or how that all transpired. Uh, but I remember that I listened and I watched. I remember that the speaker wasn't great, but I remember that the message was quite good. And it pointed to the faithfulness of God. It pointed to the fact that you can trust God. It reminded me that even though I was in a scenario that looked bleak, my source had never let me down before. I had greater reason to believe because I had remembered. If you want to strengthen your faith, you need a system for remembering. Because if you forget the believability of the source, you'll forget the believability of every scenario you find yourself in. Because faith is not just believing. Faith is remembering. And our capacity to believe, our ability to believe hinges on our willingness to remember. If we neglect to remember, we will cease to have that same impact in our life. So how do you remember? How do you remember the faithfulness of God in your life? What are you doing to remind yourself of God's dependability? I don't think we'll ever find out the details of Caleb's story. I don't think we'll ever be able to to figure out what made Caleb different in this story. But at the very least, I think we can agree that Caleb was someone who held on to God's promise. He knew that God had promised to give them the land. He knew that God could be trusted to fulfill that promise. Maybe Caleb was one of those people that repeated that promise to himself. Over and over again, and it just built stronger and stronger confidence in who he was and what God was doing in his life Maybe Caleb made it a habit to hang out with joshua Someone who was like-minded someone who'd been used by god to carry out a number of other spectacular events We don't know for sure But we do know that this promise was a key component for him stepping out in faith So what promises do you cling to? What has God spoken to you that maybe once before it resonated deep in your heart, but now you've reached the point of forgetting? Do you only consider the scenarios in your life or do you consider the source who has a history of making the impossible possible? Because faith is not just believing. Faith is remembering. And one of the ways we remember is through prayer. We remember when we pray because when we pray, we're instructed to, first of all, look up. Remember who God is. Remember his character. Remember his faithfulness. One of the ways we remember when we pray is by remembering how God has been faithful to us in our prayers. What's the last prayer that God has answered in your life? Does it come to mind? Do you dwell on it? Have you written it down? Do you remember the fact that He is faithful and just to give us what we need? We're going to sing a couple of songs here in just a moment, and our prayer team is going to be available. Curtis Cottrell and Dave and Jackie Pascal will be up at the front. I'll be there as well. You might just want to process some of this. You might want to ask them how's God been active in your life? This is what I'm thinking. I don't know how to remember. What would you suggest? Another way that we remember well is when we sing songs because we dwell on those lyrics. They remind us of how God has acted, they remind us of the promises of God. The words that Caleb and Joshua say that second time, it's a promise. They say, The Lord is with us. It's not only a promise to those people, it's a promise to all those who choose to trust God. It's a promise, it's repeated throughout the scriptures into the new testament it's a promise of Jesus I will never leave you I will never forsake you I will be with you and so as you ask the spirit to speak to you as you pray with others as you sing these songs we're going to begin by singing about one of these promises it's a song called you never let go I will not fear just as Caleb and Joshua did not fear why because my God is with me Let's pray. Lord, the truth of your story is that you are faithful. The truth of the story is that when we are obedient. When we follow you, we begin to see the impossible become possible. The truth of the story is that when we act out of fear or not out of faith, we actually miss out on things, just like the people in this story did. The truth of this story, Lord, is that our past has a major impact on our present. And so as we sing, as we listen to you, I pray that you would remind us and encourage us to remember. I pray that you would speak to us in the form of a promise, of a word that gives us that confidence of knowing that you are with us. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. You are faithful. Amen.